Roses are red. Violets are blue. Goodbye, Britain. We still love you. Hello and welcome to the Europelex podcast. It's a special Valentine's edition today and I'm teen heartthrob Ewan Healy and in this episode we discuss with Europelex very own Ireland expert Sean Glennon about the elections in Ireland. With me, of course, is Europelex stunning Gabriel Hedengren. Hi Ewan. So yeah, once again we have a jam-packed episode this week. Uh, but first, as always, we're going to go through a roundup of some of the electoral, political and governmental stories that you might have missed this week. Our first news story takes us to the German state of Thuringia. The only uh, left-wing linker party minister-president in all of Germany, that's the leader of uh, the government of one of Germans, Linda, the regions. Uh, and he was removed from office by a kind of Bahamas alliance, uh, no confidence vote, of the liberal FDP, the centre-right CDU, and the right-wing AFD. The FDP, despite being the smallest party in the regional parliament, has now won a vote to have their leader appointed as replacement. Long-time listeners of the podcast will remember that uh, back in the election last year, there was much drama around the Thuringia election because the FDP were only 73 votes over the threshold. However, Thomas Kemmerich, the leader of the FDP, is now the minister-president. However, he's now ended up quitting and submitting a bill to trigger snap elections less than 24 hours after being elected minister-president, essentially centred around criticism that the liberal FDP and the centre-right CDU had cooperated with the right-wing AFD. The regional drama in Thuringia has also had major repercussions at the national level in Germany, as his successor to Angela Merkel as the leader of centre-right CDU, Annegret kramp karrenbauer has announced that she will not be a candidate for chancellor in the 2021 federal election, and that she will step down as leader of CDU as well. She was heavily criticised for failing to stop her party's regional faction in Thuringia from actively backing up the new minister-president along with the AFD. Angela Merkel actually intervened in the process directly, really undermining her position as party leader and called her behavior there unforgivable. Uh, so now this has triggered a leadership contest within CDU, less than a year away from the election, and everything's very unstable. But at least we have Angela Merkel for another year, right? <laughs> now to Romania. On February the 5th, Romania's minority centre-right government, headed by Prime Minister Ludovic Orban of the EPP-affiliated National Liberal Party, was toppled following a no-confidence vote in the country's Chamber of Deputies, supported by the centre-left Romanian Social Democratic Party and the centre-right Democratic Alliance of Hungarians in Romania, which is also a member of the EPP in the European Parliament. Now, this comes just four months after the previous centre-left government was toppled in a similar vote and follows years of parliamentary stability in the country. What's changed since the last vote, however, is that the incumbent president, President Johannes of the centre-right National Liberal Party, won a decisive two-thirds majority against the Social Democratic candidate last year, which has boosted the party's confidence. More specifically, at the end of January, our polling aggregate showed the party at 42.9%, almost 20 percentage points higher than it was at this point last year. Now, as Romanian electoral law states, a snap election is triggered if more than one vote of no confidence passes within a 60-day period. It is believed that the president and acting prime minister hoping it will be able to transfer their party's strong polling numbers into a parliamentary majority. 
On February 9th, snap parliamentary elections were held in Azerbaijan, which is a country considered to be authoritarian according to the Economist Democracy Index. So the country's president, Ilham Aliyev, has been in power since 2003 when he succeeded his own father, Haider Aliyev, representing the new Azerbaijan party. And the new Azerbaijan party has been in government since 1995 with its own majority in parliament from 2000 onwards. And the official reason for the election being called, according to the governing party's executive secretary, was to simplify the implementation of Aliyev's reform program. So as you might expect in an authoritarian regime, the poll was marked by violence against journalists and observers and widespread electoral violations relating to the counting of ballots and the tabulation. So in the end, official results that obviously are being contested concluded that the effect of the affair will be rather small, in fact, with the new Azerbaijan party gaining three seats and the amount of independence decreasing by 10. And the, the independent group in the parliament is actually the main opposition force. Turnout also decreased quite a bit from 56% to 48%, which is obviously depressing for any country. And finally, if you came here for a mention of the US Democratic Party primaries, tough. This is Europe, But we do have a sister account, America Elihia. Yeah, go follow them and you'll get all the latest on what's going on. So for this very Ireland-focused episode, I'm super pleased to be able to sit down with our Europelex team member, Sean Glennon. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. Hi. Yeah, good to have you with us. And I mean, there's so much for us to pick apart. I guess I should just, for listeners that aren't necessarily as clued up as you are, at least, to just go through what we what's happened and uh, what we will be discussing. So last Saturday, the Irish electorate went out to vote in its first general election of the 2020s. And as you will all know, and if you don't, you will soon, the results coming out of it are just a feast for politics nerds like us uh, here at Europe Elect. And to put it really shortly at first, you know, for the first time ever, the hegemony of center-right parties, if you can call them that, Fine uh, Gael and Fianna Fáil, was broken and left-wing Sinn Féin got the plurality of the vote for the first time with 24.5%. Uh, and that's the highest ever for the party. And it's a crazy 10 percentage point gain since the last election in 2016. Second place in the popular vote was Fianna Fáil, which got 22.2%, slightly below its previous result. But in the end, it got the most seats in parliament anyway, but by just one, namely the automatically elected speaker of the now, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, Dal... Dal Aaron, yeah, that's Dal it. Dal Aaron, uh, that's it. And the party of the current prime minister that most of you will probably know, Lior Faradkar, Fine Gael, they, you must say they've had a terrible time, right, uh, in this election, yeah. as they came third. And even though they weren't that far behind, they still came third at 20.9%, losing 5 percentage point and 12 seats from the last time. So, Sean, from your perspective, what stands out as the most surprising results? Without a doubt, it has to be this big gain for Sinn Féin. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been four years since the last election. And during those four years, Sinn Féin's really stagnated. Even in last year's local and European elections, they had a very, very bad day out. There's a lot of predictions going into this election that they were going to lose seats, lose support. And not only did they kind of book the trend, usually Sinn Féin during a general election campaign, their support goes down as we get closer to election day. Yeah. And they have a real difficulty turning kind of popularity in polls into actually votes on election day. So the fact that they got this result and the fact that during the campaign, 
their support kept growing and growing and growing. Um, it's a massive surprise. Yeah, and crazy. then also, um, and then also just the fact that for the first time ever, the most popular party isn't either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Um, yeah, truly a shocking election for us yeah, here in Ireland. Crazy. I mean, I was I was looking through uh, our data just, and it is really crazy how it was just literally the last month or so that they just had this huge surge. And what would you say? What what was it that they did in order to to achieve this amazing feat for them? So a lot of people are debating this in the Irish media right now, and nobody has an answer. Imagine. But um, but it it seems to be they really focus on what Irish people are concerned about. Um, the exit poll uh, on an election yeah. day showed that the two biggest issues for people were health and housing, and actually for Sinn Fein voters, housing was the number one issue. Oh. Um, and in this area, um, in this area, their spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien, he's been really, really out there in the media, putting forward proposals. Um, their finance spokesperson, Pierre Starty, as well, has been very good on the whole issue of insurance, which has been um, a real burden to kind of younger voters uh, recently, the kind of in- increase in price in insurance in Ireland recently. And um, and actually for the first time, so under their new leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, they've actually been yeah. out there saying they're willing to go into government. They're willing to go in, even as a junior partner for Fianna Gael or for Fianna Fáil, to put their policies into action. And um, and so, yeah, I think as well, they were just able to capture a real mood for change. Yeah. Um, I think people have had Fianna Gael for nine years. And I actually thought it was a little bit interesting because um, I saw one of Fianna Fáil's internet videos, social media videos, was trying to capture that mood for change. It was something you might see from like Jeremy Corbyn or Momentum <laughs> in the UK. Yeah. But just pe- people didn't buy it. Uh, Fianna Fáil's been supporting the Fianna Gael government for the last four years. And so Fianna Fáil weren't able to tap into that mood for change, mm-hmm. whereas Sinn Féin obviously were. Uh, so in terms of the bigger parties then that have sort of well, not sort of, they have dominated Irish politics for so long and um, and government positions and things like that. So can you just put into context how bad is this result from them looking back in time? Is it, is it you know, something that's sort of you've seen coming for a while or is it just this monumental collapse? So Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil used to be the most successful political party in Europe. Uh, from 1933 to 2011 they always averaged about at least 40 percent of the popular vote and it was only in 2011 right after the financial crash that they collapsed down to 17 percent they were able to recover a little bit in 2016 they increased their vote to 24 percent and they increased their seats to 45 seats and uh, it was kind of seen as you know they were getting back there this was really going to be their election to lose you know, most people predicted it was going to be a Fianna Fáil government, maybe supported by the Greens, maybe supported by Labour. So the fact that they lost seats and lost support, it kind of, for them, it shows that their stagnation might be permanent. And I think they'll be very worried about that. Um, as for Fianna Gael, um, at 35 seats, it's the worst result for Fianna Gael since 2002. Mm-hmm. But uh, their, their support, 20.9%, this is the lowest share of the vote they've gotten since 1948. Um, so even uh, someone pointed out on uh, Twitter, actually, back in, I think it was November or December, the, the kind of last opinion poll of um, of 2019 put them on 30%. So this was an election they were going in. They had a popular leader in Leo Varadkar. 
they really thought they had a fighting chance maybe to make gains in this election. Uh, so the fact that they came out of it with their lowest results since 1948, uh, it's devastating for them. So how much of that was Leo Varadkar and how much of it was just as you, like the policy debate and the sort of last stretch campaigning? So, um, yeah, Leo, Leo Varadkar had a few gaffes during the campaign. Um, I think it was quite easy. He comes from Dublin. He kind of has a bit of a posh accent. Mm-hmm. It's easy for the other parties to, particularly in rural Ireland, it's easy for parties to paint him as out of touch. As well, as well as that, you know, I touched on the fact that people were just hungry for change. And then Fianna Gael really tried to make this election about Brexit. Now, I mean, credit where credit's due, they've done a really good job on Brexit and they've had the backing of uh, Europe for most of that. Mm-hmm. But um, in the uh, exit poll on election day, only 1% of voters listed Brexit as one of the main yeah, priorities. Crazy. Whereas the, the big two issues that people were voting on, health and housing, these are areas where voters kind of perceive Fianna, Fianna Gael as having failed. And uh, while Fianna Gael were putting out Leo Varadkar, Foreign Minister Simon Coveney, and their European Affairs uh, Minister Helen McEntee, who are kind of key to the Brexit negotiations, mm-hmm. um, their Health Minister Simon Harris, he wasn't in the campaign at all, and their Housing Minister Owen Murphy, again, nobody saw him during the campaign. So these two big issues that were motivating most Irish voters uh, Fine Gael just didn't have answers for. Yeah, I mean, I must say as well, looking at it from more of an outside perspective, I think it's a really good lesson that if you're not in tune with, you know, the national issues and the national debate, you can get quite a war for you. Because I think for a lot of people, Leo Varadkar has always been quite present in the past few years because of Brexit, seen as very stable and popular, this sort of, uh, I guess, Trudeau type person and i guess you can have parallels to other elections countries as well where seemingly there's a strong competent government I, um, I, but then when it gets put to the actual electorate mm. all these other things that the international media might not cover as much because it's local in nature just completely manifests itself which it seems like it's done here yeah i think i think trudeau is a good example actually as a leader similar to radker who great international profile but domestically not that popular and um, it's interesting going into the election um, a lot of international media outlets they know Varadkar for his work on Brexit you know and they see him as a very capable politician so the fact that this election wasn't about Brexit the fact that this election was about housing yeah. healthcare, um, insurance I think that really probably took the international media by surprise so what uh, um on top of what we've already t- uh, touched on, what would you say set this election campaign apart in terms of how the various candidates and campaigners uh, treated each other, how, you know, debates and things like that? Was it quite similar to previous Irish elections or were there sort of aspects of it where you've seen change? Well, so the most obvious thing is going into this election, it was really seen as a presidential style contest between Leo Varadkar and uh, Fianna Fáil leader Michal Martin. And, um, you know, because both in 2011, I mean, Fianna Gael was widely predicted to win. And again, in 2016, nobody really expected any other party besides Fianna Gael would form the government. But this time it felt like there was a genuine contest for the leadership of the country. And so the initial leadership debates actually just had Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar. It wasn't actually until the final debate that um, 
that uh, Mary Lou MacDonald, the leader of Sinn Féin, was included. And, uh, and then, yeah, as we came into the final week, just the fact that you had a three-way contest and the exit poll, I mean, on the actual election day, there was a bit more, um, when the results came out, there was a bit more space between the three main parties. But the exit poll put them all on 22%. And I, I just yeah, think that's, that never, yeah, that's yeah. never been seen in Irish politics before. An ex- and, well, first off, yeah. a three-way contest has never been seen. But um, just uh, all on 22%. Uh, when that came out, I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, it's good. I, it does, I guess, illustrate the new landscape where you have these three blocks. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just... Yeah, that was just, I mean, for us who cover polls and exit polls and everything all the time, it's so unusual (laughs) to have that. Um, So, obviously, as you have these two bigger parties crumbling, Sinn Féin rising, it's going to lead to, you know, a now more fragmented parliament. How do do you think that will impact a government solidifying and the negotiations there? Can you tell us a bit about how it usually goes on in Ireland? Is it usually quite straightforward and, and pragmatic? Or is there us- usually a lot of hard negotiations and controversy? And what can we expect in the next month or so, so sort of? So um, usually in Irish politics, um, there have been two main blocks. And it's usually been Fianna Fáil, and maybe yeah. sometimes they'll need another party or a few independents to make up the numbers. And then on the other side is Fianna Gael and Labour. And again, sometimes they'll need another party, sometimes they'll need a few independents. Um, 2016 really broke that because neither Fianna Fáil nor Fianna Gael or Labour actually could put together the numbers. So for the first time ever, we had a Fianna Fáil support Fianna Gael and a confidence in supply. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that option... First off, it's impossible because for the first time ever, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil don't command a majority of seats um, in Dáil Éireann. Um, so last time it did take about three months to form a government. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it even took longer this time yeah. because you're not realistically, what's happening now is that um, Sinn Féin are talking about putting together a left-wing government. Um, they're mentioning... Labour Party, Green Party, Social Democrats, Solidarity People Before Profit, and possibly Independence. Yeah. And while the numbers don't add up, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are kind of taking an option. All right, let's sit back, let them put together their government. But I think maybe it's just game playing. Yeah. I think in the long run, you're not going to have a government without at least two of these main parties. Um, and Fianna Fáil is in a very unique position in that realistically they could form a government with either Sinn Féin or Fine Gael. and Leo Varadkar has actually just come out today and said he sees his role as leader of the opposition but if it's two months time and we're still struggling to put together a government it might be a little bit more um, acceptable yeah. for Fine Gael to form a government with Fianna Fáil. Um, so what's the electorate's view on this? Do you know the Fianna Fáil's voters? How do, how do they would it be contentious to have a closer sort of working relationship with Sinn Féin? So the issue with um, the issue with any party doing a deal with Sinn Féin is that both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael said before the election that they absolutely wouldn't. And so in the exit poll, they did uh, they did ask these parties' voters um, whether the parties were right or wrong to rule out governing with uh, Sinn Féin. And while... F- 60% of Fianna Fáil's voters said that they were right, that they shouldn't go into government with Sinn Féin. So 60% of your voters, that's a big chunk. Mm-hmm. And in Fianna Gael, it's even more, it's 70%. So 
So I think for um, for either party to do a deal with Sinn Féin, and I think Fianna Fáil, if, if one of them is going to do it, it would be Fianna Fáil. Yeah. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for them. I think it might even have to be... The issue is, this is Michal Martin's kind of last chance to become Prime Minister, to become a Taoiseach, as we call it in this country. Yeah. Uh, this is his third general election, and I don't think he's going to be given a fourth chance. Uh, so <laughs> That's already that might, a lot of chances. <laughs> yeah. So this might be a bit of a motivating factor yeah. in whether or not a government can be put together. It still seems unlikely to imagine Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin sitting around a cabinet table together, but at this moment, it still seems like the most likely scenario is that some sort of agreement will happen between them. Yeah, it's definitely going to be fascinating to follow. I mean, if look more long term, it's always hard when these sort of earthquakes happen to determine whether it's sort of something happenstance because of, you know, the debate that month that the election takes place or whether it's actually a long term trend. So do you think this new landscape and do you think it's going to sort of consolidate now or do you see a, a sort of a flash in the pan sort of situation that might be reversed going forward? So I think for Sinn Féin, it's really a win-win situation because yeah. as the second largest party in Dáil Éireann, they're in, a, they're in a position now where they're either part of a governing coalition or they will lead the opposition. Um, and leading the opposition, they're basically seen as the alternative government in waiting. I think the next, this Dáil term, the next mm-hmm. four or five years are going to be really crucial. Uh, people really put their faith in Sinn Féin that they can deliver on the housing crisis, the healthcare crisis, and the kind of the kind of controversies we've seen in insurance. And if if they let down their supporters, then yeah, there's then they they won thirty seven seats, and it's the exact same number that the Labour Party won in two thousand eleven. The Labour Party now is only on six seats. So it does show that while the Irish electorate might be willing to um, go for something a little bit more radical from time to time, uh, if the, if a party fails to deliver, and that's arguably what happened with the Labour Party, then the voters won't be shy in abandoning them. I think what's really interesting in Ireland, we use a preferential voting system. In a lot of constituencies where Sinn Féin had too many votes and not enough candidates, a lot of uh, the Sinn Féin voters' second preferences went further to the left, to uh, solidarity, people before profit and left-wing independence. So this to me shows that if Sinn Féin can't deliver on its pledges, that a lot of these voters could abandon them um, and vote for alternative left-wing parties. So how likely is it that this government formation process leads to another election if it doesn't work out? Well, it's being talked about a lot in the media um, because it's really uncertain what's going to happen and there's no obvious government that's going to be formed. Um, I guess the issue is that both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael really wouldn't want another election. Uh, Sinn Féin underperformed, they didn't run enough candidates, and now that they have even more momentum on their side, if, if it means that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would have to come together in a coalition themselves, or whether Fianna Fáil would have to facilitate a coalition with Sinn Féin, I think that might be preferable to another yeah. election. And while Sinn Féin wouldn't be afraid of an election, and while some in Sinn Féin would be a little bit hopeful that an election would see them win even more seats, They've got a really strong mandate. They've got a historic result here. And I, I think they're pretty eager to put that into practice and form a government. Well, sounds good. Um, and I guess we'll just have to follow this and follow Europe Alex, obviously, uh, to get all the polls and all the information and news as it 
as it definitely. comes over the coming months. Definitely. Uh, Follow your started, I guess. <laughs> it just started, I guess, this whole new period in Irish electoral politics, which is so cool. Um, it's exciting times. Well, thank you, Sean, for uh, speaking to us about it and putting it all into context. It's been um, really interesting, and uh, hopefully you'll be back back with us soon. All right. Looking forward to it, Gabriel. Thank you very much for having me. This is the podcast of the Paul Aggregator EuropeLex. Every two weeks, EuropeLex's head of communications, Ewan Healy, and contributor for Sweden, Gabriel Hedengren, that's me, takes you across Europe talking politics, polls, and a whole assortment of general nerdiness. We are currently looking for podcast sponsors, so get in touch via our website if you'd like to advertise with us. Hey, folks. It's Ewan here again. Very excited to be sitting down with another Sean. Sean Defoe this time, who is an incredibly talented Irish journalist and political correspondent for Ireland's largest group of radio stations. He's here to go further in unpacking what happened on Saturday and look further on what this will mean for the formation of a government in Ireland. Hello, Sean. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, well, thank you. So first up, just to build on what our Sean has talked about, uh, what's your angle on this? You know, what jumped out at you as the, the biggest surprise from the weekend? I think it has to be the rise of Sinn Féin. And given that just a couple of months ago, they were at 11% in the polls, going nowhere, selecting their candidates based on the fact that they were probably going to lose seats. And instead, they they stormed to 24% in the polls. They're the second largest party by just one seat uh, behind Fianna Fáil. So a historic result for them, won the popular vote, more TDs, which are our MPs than they've ever had before in 37 of them. And gone for pretty much a Lazarus story from people writing the obituaries of some of these politicians to people who lost their council seats in votes just last May being elected with big whopping majorities and massive, massive votes. There's people who got 400 votes in a local election just a couple of months ago and came back with 18,000, 20,000 votes in the general election. So that real shift towards them, but also away from the two traditional civil war parties in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil who have dominated the Irish landscape, who for decades between them shared about 80% of the vote and this time they didn't even get to 45% combined so it's a real reshaping of the political landscape in Ireland. I think yeah that was something that really struck me as looking at the results coming in from for Sinn Féin and seeing that some of their candidates were receiving double the quota because candidate they hadn't been running enough candidates in constituencies which is absolutely fascinating I mean and on top of that Something else I found really surprising was the fact that the turnout was down on Saturday on the 2016 election, down 2.2 percentage points. Um, what you know, drops in percentage, drops in turnout like that don't usually coincide with with big shifts like Saturdays. Do you think there's something to be read into from that? Was it simply just that Fine Gael's voters didn't turn up? Yeah, I suppose a little bit of that. It is an interesting statistical anomaly. I think there was a couple of things in it. One, that there probably were a few disaffected Fine Gael voters who didn't come out and vote. Uh, also, the factors on the day, there was Storm Kira on the day of it. So what we actually saw was in the morning time on Saturday, really high turnout, much higher than had been expected and much higher than the last time and that tapered off throughout the day because well, a couple of reasons one there was quite a big Six Nations game on at two o'clock that a lot of people wanted to to get out and see or go and watch or go to the pub 
and the storm started to hit around two, three o'clock as well, which meant going outside not all that pleasant. So there is a bit of a thinking that that probably stalled some of the older vote from coming out, that there were people who would usually and traditionally be Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil supporters who didn't brave the weather and didn't actually get out there. And so that's probably also what skewed it a bit further towards Sinn Féin because their base would be a lot younger, would be people who don't have the same connection with Sinn Féin's IRA past as perhaps older voters do. So I think if it were a rerun on a normal day when those factors weren't taken into account, the percentage probably would have shifted a little bit back towards Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. But overall, uh, you know, the turnout being down was was something of a blip in the road. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Another thing that was picked out of the election that I I think surprised a lot of uh, our European audience, you know, outside of Ireland is, is, is how many... Uh, independents were elected to the Irish Parliament, um, the Doyle Aaron. 20 of your 160 seat legislature um, are are now independents. Is, is, is this just a function of the single transferable vote system or is there something in Irish culture which sort of has an affinity for independent candidates? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. The transferable vote obviously helps them because it helps personalities at a local level really shine through sometimes and they tend to draw votes from all parties and none and, and transfers from people who would otherwise vote for a party. The rise of independence has actually been quite stark. And really in the last couple of, of Dáil's, it's been really prominent. I think there was 19 in the last or 20 in this one, whereas 20 years ago, they weren't a huge feature. And it, it's become a part because of what happened in the, the 80s and 90s. There was a, a man named Tony Gregory who was elected in Dublin and whose vote ended up being crucial for a couple of governments. And he managed to exercise quite a lot for his local area and for inner city Dublin. Uh, by doing that he just managed to leverage it into votes and we've seen then independents basically build their brand on that that they would go in and support a government in exchange for something locally be it extra services for their local hospital extra guard resources or guard stations which is the police force being built there um so we have seen that rise but also interestingly in in this particular election last time the last government had the single highest number of independents involved in it it's ever had because it was a minority government and it needed the support of them. And almost all of those who were in government have actually lost their seats. The transport minister who was an independent, the children's minister who was an independent, uh, one of the junior ministers who was in charge of flooding, they, three of them lost their seats, two of them didn't stand again. And the only one who was involved, uh, only two really who were involved in that government had already pulled their support for it previously. So created a bit of their distance between themselves and the previous government before the election, which is an interesting quirk that even though some of them went in and tried to make a difference in ministries, they actually got punished for it then at a local level. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing. And I think one, one thing that jumped out, a lot of people have seen the, the, the Healy Ray family, um, you know, a lot of uh, win- winning several seats in the legislature, a fascinating little sort of anomaly, which has been covered quite a lot uh, across Europe, actually, uh, as those, I think, just the, per- the characters have jumped out at foreign news agencies covering stories. Yeah, um, they're a really, um, they're a really individual bunch. And they, uh, Jackie Healy Ray, who was the father of the two current Healy Rays who were in the Dáil, was along with Tony Gregory, one of those first independents to support a government and get the services he needed. And they've come become kind of a little fiefdom among themselves. It's a, a quirk in the system that uh, no Healy Ray has ever lost an election, be it to become a member of the Dáil or a member of the local council. They now have three of the the kids are on the council in Kerry and two of their, their, their parents are members of the Dáil. So no one broke that record in this and both of them were returned. So a little bit more on the on the bizarre functions of STV. Um, right now, the, the parliament looks very fractured. Um, and 
you know, the previous parliament only yielded a minority government for Leo Varadkar's Fine Gael. Do you think there's a route to any kind of government in this Doyle? It's very difficult to see. And in the wake of the election, we're all trying to figure out how the numbers actually work. It's never happened before where no combination of the two of the top three parties can actually form a government on their own. There will need to be at least three parties just to make up the numbers, unless there's a minority situation. But that ended, that confidence and supply arrangement between Fine Fall and Fine Gael ended particularly badly. Neither of them did very well in this election, and I don't think anyone is particularly keen to go back to it. So right now what we're seeing is Sinn Féin are reaching out to other parties on the left to try and form a government, but the Labour Party has said it's not going to go in, it doesn't feel like it has the mandate, and, and with Without them, it simply doesn't have the numbers. They just don't work to get to the 80 majority that's actually needed. So eventually, one of Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil, you would think, is going to have to come in to play again in order to, to form a coalition with Sinn Féin, which has never been done before. The Sinn Féin have never been in government in the Republic, and both parties are pretty reluctant to actually do a deal. In fact, Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin, the two leaders, entirely ruled it out repeatedly during the election, said they wouldn't do a deal with Sinn Féin and would not work with them. But it looks as though if the numbers are going to work, they'll have to. There just isn't another combination that can actually do it. So one of those three, the Leo Varadkar, Mary Lou MacDonald or Micheál Martin, likely to be the Taoiseach? Or are we going to see perhaps a compromise candidate proposed or even fresh elections? Fresh elections are definitely on the table. I don't think that can be ruled out because of the difficulty with the numbers. Leo Varadkar has said that he thinks he'll be the leader of the opposition after this process. He's almost ruled himself out of being Taoiseach and there isn't a very clear path at all for him to get back there. Micheál Martin has the largest number of TDs or MPs with 38, but that's literally just one ahead of Mary Lou MacDonald, who has 37. So if you were to see a deal, and Mary Lou MacDonald's already said this, you would think that there has to be a rotating Taoiseach policy. This is something that was put on the table by Enda Kenny the last time around when he was trying to make a deal that he would be Taoiseach for one year and then Micheál Martin Taoiseach for another. So it looks as though that could be back in any talks if eventually Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin do sit down that maybe they might swap it. One would be the Prime Minister and one would be the Deputy Prime Minister and they swap after a year or two years or whatever agreement they manage to come to. Now, one thing that's been talked about a lot is, you know, Sinn Féin obviously are a very sort of uh, uh, hardline pro-Irish unity party. Do you think there could be increased pressure from a new Irish government that they are involved in um, towards moves like that, perhaps a border poll under the Good Friday Agreement? Uh, absolutely. I think if Sinn Féin are in government in any form, they are going to keep pushing for it. They've been pushing for it since the morning of the Brexit election. It was their first press release out when, when Brexit actually happened uh, that morning in 2016. They said now is the time for a border poll. Northern Ireland has to stay within the EU. It's not fair that they can't be EU citizens when Northern Ireland voted by majority to stay in the European Union. It was something that Mary Lou Macdonald set out that if she was in government with it within five years, she wanted to see a border poll and wanted to see that that um, that happen. The other leaders, Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar, have kind of said they don't think five years is a realistic timeline that you risk scaring unionists and creating more division in Northern Ireland by doing that and by rushing the process. They think it is a, a more longer term project, even though Fianna Fáil styles itself as the Republican Party, they just think that their time isn't right, that there needs to be more groundwork. So there has to be a bit of a compromise there. They both have said they do want to see a united Ireland eventually. But the difficulty, I suppose, is that any border poll is actually in the gift of the UK government. It's not up to the Irish government when it happens, even though they could exert pressure to try and move things towards it. Yeah, and I think 
what everyone I think across Europe is looking at the relationship between the Irish and British government is going to be really important as we go through the next uh, 12 months or, or more if there's an extension of Brexit negotiations. I mean, what's your summary of what this sort of fractured situation could mean for Brexit and then for the wider European situation as a whole? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Leo Varadkar ended up having quite a good relationship with Boris Johnson in the few months that they were both leaders, even though his relationship with Theresa May wasn't particularly good. It was that meeting, you remember, in Liverpool when they actually broke the deadlock and managed to get a deal. The two of them just went into the room and managed to work it out. And that's what kicked everything off to allowing Brexit to actually happen on January 31st. I think Mary Lou Macdonald obviously has no love for any sort of a, of a British government. It doesn't I don't think the personalities overly matter. She is a Republican. The uh, Sinn Féin are a very hardline uh, nationalistic Republican party and they want a united Ireland. That is their uh, panacea. You know, it's the ultimate goal for them above all else, I would say, above the economy, housing, health, everything else. That is the, the pie in the sky goal that Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness set out and set the party towards. Michal Martin is a bit more nuanced. He's a he's a YA negotiator, has been around the corridors of Europe when he was a minister back in the 2000s and in the 90s, has played the game and kind of knows that system a little bit more. Sinn Féin have had a bit of a Eurosceptic history. They, they have not always been on the side of Project Europe and on the side of greater integration. So that would be interesting to see how that dynamic works if they were actually in government. I think Michal Martin is probably more of the traditional statesman that we've seen, would be able to create that relationship with the UK. He's a pragmatist at the end of the day. He's worked with parties that he doesn't particularly want to work with, like we've seen with Fine Gael in the last four years. So perhaps that lends itself to better relations with Europe and with the UK. It would be certainly very interesting to see how Sinn Féin would react to a UK government. And given given the hardline stance they've had for many, many years, and some of the comments that, me, uh, that Mary Lou Macdonald has had to make about Boris Johnson and others over the years. She pretty much has blamed stagnation in the North on the Tory government and uh, any criticism that is thrown at her about her own party's record in Northern Ireland. She comes back to the Tory government and how they wouldn't do this and they wouldn't do that. So it's not exactly a, a great base to start off. Clearly going to be some big national and international ramifications for whoever becomes the next Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming and chatting to us. It's really interesting. And if there is another election, I'm sure we'll have you back again. <laughs> Don't say another election. I haven't slept after the first one yet. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sean. See you later. Thank you. Bye bye. So now it's time for the Who is Who segment of the podcast, where you and I pick one commissioner each out of a hat and give you a brief introduction to who they are and what they're asked to do. So this week, I picked Oliver Valheri, who's the Commissioner for Neighborhood and Enlargement in the EU. So he's Hungarian and he's a lawyer and diplomat who's an independent on the national level, but within the European Parliament sits with the European People's Party group, so the center-right group and the biggest group in the Parliament. So Varheli wasn't actually Hungary's first choice for commissioner, but was appointed to the position following the rejection of Viktor Orban's previous justice minister, Laszlo Troxanyi, for issues around conflicts of interest. And while he's not officially a member of Fidesz, the ruling party of Hungary, headed by Viktor Orban, he's seen as highly loyal to it. So really not a surprise choice, but sort of a compromise in order to, to appease the EU. He does have decades of experience when it comes to EU politics, having headed the country's Ministry of Justice's EU Law Department, and he also acted as the ambassador to the EU from 2015 onwards. So as commissioner, Verheli is now in charge of maintaining the relations with states neighboring the European Union. I wonder if that will include the UK, hmm, but I'm not sure, I don't think so. And 
as well as the accession processes of those considering joining. So the most realistic countries there would be North Macedonia and Serbia. The commissioner I'm here to talk about is Thierry Breton, the commissioner for internal markets and services. Now, Mr. Breton is the only commissioner who has no national or EU level party affiliation. He's an independent. He's a businessman with quite a complex, busy CV, having started his career as a professor in IT and mathematics before founding his own software company. He then went on to be CEO at public firms, including Thomson and France Telecom. In politics, Breton is most well known for his stint as finance minister under President Chirac between 2005 and 2007. Now, following more than 10 years as the chairman of an IT services company called Atos, he has taken on the role of commissioner after being nominated by the current French president Emmanuel Macron. Breton is currently in charge of all concerns relating to the EU single market and has a mandate to promote the free movement of people, goods, services and capital, known as the Four Freedoms, between member states. Another famous Frenchman having had this job already is Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator throughout the Brexit process. So who knows where Thierry Breton will go? Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between episodes. And if you like what we do, which we hope you do, please subscribe and review this podcast to keep us around for more. Also tell people about us. You can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media and on Instagram at, at europe underscore elex. See you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronos Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson and the music was by Jose Alvarado. Nice.